This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia, our series of discussions on the Church through history. Today, we continue our lecture series on J. Gresham Machen, as taught by Dr. Daryl G. Hart at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Today's lecture is titled, What Prepared Machen to Fight? Okay, this is the second week of a uh, lesson, series of lessons on uh, J. Gresham Machen uh, that I have entitled, uh, the overall series is Machen, the Fighter of the Good Fight, so I'm emphasizing uh, Machen's fighting uh, the battles of the Presbyterian Church. And today, as you can tell from this outline, I'm hoping to cover his, uh, the basis, uh, sort of what prepared him to fight. Um, so looking at biographical uh, background and some other uh, matters training to his early life and then uh, next week we'll uh, move into his so-called professional career and the, um, the interests that absorbed his uh, activities and, and, and thoughts. Um, the point of today's lesson, if there is one point, is that it, Machen was the least likely uh, fundamentalist would turn out to be a fundamentalist, and I will argue later on, God willing, in this course, that Machen was not a fundamentalist, that he was a, a Presbyterian and not a fundamentalist, and there is a difference. Um, but he, he became very much involved in fundamentalist controversy, and therefore was, was known as a fundamentalist, even though some also called him a highbrow fundamentalist, and that's that highbrow aspect that you see in, in his early life and back, family background, which makes, again, his emergence as a conservative fighting in, in the uh, Presbyterian controversy, very unusual. Um, he came from a family background, as we will see, that uh, probably produced, th- these sorts of people produced the least amount of uh, people who would leave the Presbyterian church. These were the people who had stained glass windows after their family members in the churches. They had a lot invested, family ties, and cultural ties to these institutions that would have made them very um, reluctant to leave the confines of the Presbyterian Church and join with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church when it started in 1936. Um, And even Machen's brother tried the OPC for a while and it didn't quite fit and they eventually uh, became members of the Episcopal Church um, where the cultural associations were more comfortable, I think, for, for them. So, um, if, if you think about Machen in relation to some of the other Presbyterian fundamentalists, people like William Jennings Bryan or Billy Sunday, you see a very different sort of background, family background. Although, not to discredit Bryan, he ran for the presidency three times, lost three times, but still running for president of the United States is, is uh, no uh, mean accomplishment. So, 
Um, so Machen comes from two families, obviously, the Machens and the Gressons. Uh, the Machen's, um, <clears throat> Machen's father, Arthur Webster Machen, was a prominent attorney in Baltimore. I think I read somewhere that over the course of his, his career, he tried more cases before some, the Maryland courts than any other attorney. Uh, that may not mean that he was a great attorney, but um, what, one indication of his greatness may be when I was serving jury duty in Baltimore, during our time there, uh, the, the waiting room, which was an old old uh, courtroom, which, but the place where they assembled people waiting to be called juries, jury duties, um, there were a variety of portraits on the walls in this, in this really kind of grand courtroom. And there was a portrait of Arthur Machen, Machen's father there. So you know, they don't, usually those sorts of portraits are reserved for judges or presidents or things like that, people who preside over things, but um, there's some indication that Arthur Machen was prominent enough to merit a, a, uh, a portrait like this. Um, he was the son of Louis Machen, who, was, um, who served Congress as a, not in Congress, but he served Congress as a, as a clerk or secretary in the, uh, in the middle decades of the 19th century. Um, and so, he lived both in Washington, D.C., but then also had a farm out in Centerville, Virginia. This is Louis Machen, Machen's uh, paternal grandfather. And there's a home there that's now preserved by the Virginia Parks uh, Historical Commission, or whatever it's called. It's called Walney, and I think I have it down here. Yeah, Walney, in Centerville, Virginia. And Walney was the Machen farm uh, home. And, and the building has now been preserved, and there's a little bit of uh, family background there. And it's also the place from where Machen's uh, paternal grandmother violated OPC policy by fighting in the Civil War. She, was a, she wasn't really a soldier. OPC has something about women fighting that you know, we don't need to get into, but the Civil War battles were very close. Bull Run is very near Manassas and all that, and so and and troops would come over the the uh, property and take what they needed sometimes. And she was there with a gun, ready to fight. I'm not sure if she ever shot it, but anyway. Um, so if you ever get down to that part of Virginia, you can uh, you could look for um, one side of the Machen family. And there's an interesting intersection there in in, in uh, Centerville called where Machen. And Lee Highways intersect, or Machen Street and Lee Highway. So you have Machen Lee. It's really quite something. If you're, especially if you have some kind of allegiance to um, the South and what the South represented politically, not necessarily uh, economically. So, um, and Machen's uncle, James Machen, who's who's buried there in Centerville, um, was a soldier in the Confederate Army. Um, he, he survived that, but there is a there is a marker at his grave of the CSA. Um, so that's one side of the family, the Machens. The other side is the Gressoms. Machen's mother was named um, Mary Gressom Machen, but known primarily as Minnie. That was her her nickname. Um, she uh, was a socialite, hostess, author. She wrote a book called The Bible and Browning, published by Macmillan. Macmillan was the publisher of Machen's books. Um, so she was publishing with Macmillan 20 years before her son. And this, this book, The Bible and Browning, is kind of, sort of a collection of 
Browning's use of scripture, I mean, his allusions to scripture or the actual quotes in scripture, from scripture in his, in his poetry. So that gives some interest of, some indication of her interest in um, poetry and literature. Um, she was descended from John Gresham, uh, who was an attorney in Macon, Georgia, also an industrialist. I think he owned parts of railroads down there. He was the mayor of Macon, Georgia. Um, he was on the board of the University of Georgia, a very prominent Georgia citizen. Um, and so uh, Machen is descended from, um, from this line of the family as well, a very prominent family in Georgia. And Machen is actually named for his, his uh, maternal grandfather, John Gresson. Um, and you can also see a home in Macon, Georgia that has the, that the, that the Gressons inhabited. It's now called the 1842 Inn. It's a four-star B&B. Ann and I were pleased to spend a night there on our route to um, Savannah when I had a speaking engagement there almost a decade ago. Um, and it's, now, it's no longer owned by the, the family, but they, they have tried to keep it in the, um, in the style of when the Gressons owned it, and they have actual pictures on the walls, photographs on the walls, of uh, people who used to live there, and among those uh, photographs is one of a little boy in a dress that looks a lot like Jay Gresson Machen. Of course, you know that bo they used to, to, to dress boys in in dresses up until a certain age. So, you know, Hemingway was also dressed in dresses as a, as a little boy, and people try to think that maybe that counts for why he was as strange as he was. But anyway, uh, you can see a picture of Machen in this setting, um, in a dress. If you ever happen to be going through Macon, Georgia, you can, you can um, stay at the 1842 Inn. It's a very, very pleasant place. Um, so, as you can tell from this sort of little overview of the family background, uh, the family was very much rooted in the South, and especially in the cause that the South fought for as far as states' rights. Um, but they were also wealthy, professional, well-connected. They entertained elites in Baltimore all the time. Woodrow Wilson, when he taught at Johns Hopkins, was a regular guest in their home. And when Machen was a student at Princeton, when, when Wilson was the president of, of the Princeton University, Machen would socialize there with, um, with Woodrow. And they also summered up in New England, in Seal Harbor, Maine, with the likes of John uh, D. Rockefeller. And Machen, over the course of his life, would actually preach in the Congregational Church in Seal Harbor um, at the invitation of John Rockefeller. So uh, Machen came from a very prominent uh, background and is very well connected. And again, something that um, you would not expect him, the, these circumstances are such that you would not expect him to emerge as a fundamentalist. Now, on the back of the handout, I, ha I have a quotation from Machen's autobiographical reflections. Um, and so I'll just, this is um, roughly from 1931. Um, or maybe 1933, I don't have it exactly. But uh, anyway, my father was a profoundly Christian man who had read widely and meditated earnestly upon the real on the really great things of our holy faith. His Christian experience was not of the emotional or pietistical type, but was a quiet stream whose waters ran, to be ran there, deep. 
He did not adopt that touch-not-taste-not-handle-not attitude toward the good things of the wonders of God's world, which too often today causes earnest Christian people to consecrate to God only an impoverished man. But in in his case, true learning and true piety went hand in hand. Every Sunday morning and Sunday night and on Wednesday night, he was in his place in church, and a similar faithfulness characterized all his service as an elder in the Presbyterian church. At that time, the Protestant churches had not yet become political lobbies, and Presbyterian elders were, not, were chosen not because they were outstanding men or women in the community, and there was female eldership in the Presbyterian church after 1920. That's why the or women there but because they were men of God. I love to think of that old Protestant Presbyterian session in Franklin Street Presbyterian Church of Baltimore. It is a refreshing memory in these days of ruthless and heartless machinery in the church. God grant that the memory may someday become actuality again and that the old Christian virtues may be revived. You can see there Machen taking shots at the Presbyterian Church of his own day in the 1830s talking about the church as a political lobby, talking about the church as a ruthless, heartless machinery. Um, so we'll, we'll come to more in the course of this lesson, this series, that might explain um, why he put it quite that way. Second, next, going on, even stronger was the influence of my mother. Like my father, she was an exceedingly wide reader. Her book on the Bible and Browning is only one gleaning gleaning from a very rich field. Her most marked intellectual characteristic perhaps was the Catholicity of her tastes. She loved poetry with a deep and discriminating love, but she loved with equal ardor the wonders and beauties of nature. Long before the days of outlines of science and outlines of everything, she was a student of botany and a student of the stars in their courses. I shall never forget the eager delight with which she used to stand with me when I was very young upon a ridge in the White Mountains and watch the long shadows creep upward upon the opposite heights. She loved nature in its more majestic aspects, and she also loved the infinite sweetness of the woods and the field. I suppose it is from her that I learned to escape sometimes from the heartless machinery of the world and the equally heartless machinery, alas, of a church organization nominally dedicated to Christ and afresh my soul with the friendliness of the hills. Among those hills that he liked to to escape to was Fairmont Park. Machen actually wrote an essay about the the joys of walking, and he talked about even walking in in Fairmont Park in Philadelphia when he lived in Center City, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. But beneath my mother's love of nature and beneath her love of poetry was that inextricably inextricably intertwined with that other love, there lay her profound reverence for the author of all beauty and all truth. To her God was all in all, and her access to God she found only through the new and living way that the scriptures point out. I do not see how anyone could know my mother well without being forever sure that whatever else there may be in Christianity, the real heart of Christianity is found in the atoning death of Christ. Um, And then he goes on to say, talk about the, um, interestingly, he doesn't say much about visiting the home in Virginia or Washington, but does talk about visiting the 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 grandparents in Macon, Georgia. And I believe the Machins went there, the uh, <clears throat> Minnie took the boys, there are three sons, every year for about two weeks in February. I think the weather in Baltimore was too cold, uh, so they needed to escape at least to, to Georgia for a couple weeks. So Machen write, I'm, writes, I'm glad that in my very early youth I visited my grandfather's 
Home in Macon, Georgia, where my mother was brought up, its fragrance and its spaciousness and simplicity were typical of a bygone age, with the passing of which I am convinced that something precious has departed from human life. And both my, my father and my mother and their associates, whom I saw from time to time, I caught a glimpse of a courtlier, richer life and a broader culture than that which dominates the metallic age in which we are now living. It is a vision that I can never forget. I cannot indeed hope to emulate the breadth and education attained by both my parents and successfully emulated, especially by my older brother, who was Arthur. My own efforts seem utterly puny when compared with such true and spontaneous learning as that, but at least I am glad I have, I have had the vision. It has taught me at least that there are things in heaven and earth never dreamed of in our mechanistic world. Someday there may be a true revival of learning to take the place of the narrowness of our age. And with that revival of learning, there may come, as in the 16th century, a rediscovery of the gospel of Christ. Now, Machen's affections for the South and this simpler, courtlier way of living in the South, uh, where, uh, which was more agrarian, obviously, and, and uh, colored by um, the circumstances of slavery, You'd think that Machen would have preferred to live in the South, but he very much enjoyed living in the urban North. He owned a car. He liked all sorts of gadgets as well. So there's a, there's a side of Machen that, that longs for perhaps a simpler uh, age and culture, but um, he was very much a modern man, as we will see. So again, he has two siblings. His older brother, whom he refers to here, Arthur, carried on the family's uh, legal uh, business, legal firm. Um, and then Thomas, the younger brother, was an architect and had a bit of a troubled life. And I'm not sure that he ever uh, was, was a professing Christian and was a great burden both to Machen and his mother. His, his father died in 1915. His mother died in roughly 1931 or three, And I always get those dates mixed up. So Machen was the, on, was the only bachelor son in the family from his father's death until his mother's death, so he, he spent a lot of time uh, with his mother, which is uh, something he could do because he was, was the bachelor. <clears throat> so that's the family background. Then as far as the education, uh, Machen, you might know, didn't go to Philmont Christian Academy. Uh, he went to a private school in Baltimore. Um, and as I said, many took the boys down to uh, Georgia in the winter, and at that time she would home- homeschool them. Um, and in addition to probably learning Latin and Greek in this private school, many made sure that they learned the shorter catechism and all the kings of Israel and Judah they needed to memorize at home. Um, and from there, Machen went to the local school, local university, Johns Hopkins, which was a revolutionary institution in its day. It was the first university dedicated to the the research model of the university life that we now take for granted. Uh, until then, it was the liberal arts education, sort of denominational colleges that dominated American higher education. Johns Hopkins, though, was going to have, it featured a graduate school, and the graduate school to this day is as big as the undergraduate uh, training. And so it specialized in training PhDs who would become the, the model for the new university professors and all that. Um, Johns Hopkins, that's not a misprint. His, one of the family names was Johns, and so he, his first name was a family name. 
Johns Hopkins. He was a Quaker. He was a wealthy industrialist, and he donated, I believe, $3 million, at the time an extraordinary sum, to the founding of Johns Hopkins. But, and that was started in 1876. But I believe Rockefeller, when he, when he founded the, the University of Chicago in 1892, only 16 years later, gave on the order of $90 million for that. So just shows you make a lot more money back then in oil than you do in, um, in shipping, which is what uh, Hopkins did. So Machen went there. He was, he was uh, majored in Greek classical literature, studied with the famous classicist Basil Gildersleeve, another southerner. Um, it's, I think it's likely, although I don't know for sure, that Machen lived at home during that time because Johns Hopkins then was only a few blocks away from where the Machens lived. Um, he graduated Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, he stayed on at Hopkins to do a year MA in Greek again. And then he didn't know what to do with his life. He took courses at Columbia University as well as University of Chicago in law and banking. Um, and not, not, none of those things really fit him. So he eventually decided, with great reluctance, he would say to his mother to go to Princeton Seminary in 1902. Or I think the actual words were, with severe misgivings. Uh, he didn't like the idea of becoming a clergyman. Um, there were too many social conventions and constraints upon clergy. And he wanted probably to live a different kind of life than that, at least as he understood it in, in those days. So um, he did not do well at Princeton. I mean, he did well academically, but he didn't necessarily blossom uh, as a student because compared to Johns Hopkins, Princeton was incredibly narrow. They required attendance at classes, not something that what didn't happen at Johns, Johns Hopkins and Machen just was pretty much bored by the course of study. He, he regularly wrote to his mother about taking exams that he expected he would fail, and it turned out that he passed, of course. Um, he very much downplayed his, uh, his academic training there, even though he had great affection for William Park Armstrong, who taught New Testament, and who was a very important influence upon Machen or even then. But what Machen liked to do was have fun as a, as a seminarian, and so he would cut classes to take in a college football game, a lacrosse match. He would to play tennis, to ride his bike, what he called his wheel. And he also liked to ice skate on the Delaware Canal. Um, let me just give you a flavor of some of his, uh, his amusements or entertainments. Um, in one letter, he complained that we had one of the most abominably long and tough exams I ever experienced in New Testament and the trouble has just begun. Apologetics on Monday, theology on Tuesday, Old Testament history on Thursday, Old Testament canon on Friday. And then he was taking courses also at, at the university in philosophy. But then he, his, his spirits in this letter brightened considerably when he thought about life after classes. On Friday night, we have the annual Benham dinner, which was an eating club that he was a member of. Um, on Saturday night, if I get through my exam in time, I expect to go to Swarthmore to see the game which was probably a lacrosse match or a baseball game. I then expect to stay over a few days, take some rides, etc. Indeed, it is in some ways too bad they closed the seminary so early because we missed the pleasantest and most interesting part of the Princeton year. A number of the fellows are going to stay over and read and study and have a good time, and I should certainly like very much to join them for a week at any rate, at least till after the Pennsylvania baseball game, which will be a great event if I were not so anxious to see the Hopkins Crescent game on the same date. So probably you will see me 
turn up a week from Friday or Saturday. He's writing this to his mother. Um, So he liked to have fun. He liked to ride his bike a lot. Uh, He rode up to New York, uh, or at least to the upper part of New Jersey, and took the ferry over to New York. And there in New York, he would also like to shop, like to go to plays, uh, go to bookstores, etc. So Machen um, knew how to have a, a good time. Um, After Princeton, uh, Machen went to study in Germany for a year, doing one semester at Marburg University and another semester at Göttingen. And and there he studied more in New Testament um, and did further work in the field to which he would devote his his life. Um, But he also joined a fraternity there, and continued to have fun. So here's, here's a, an excerpt from a letter that he wrote back to his brother, Thomas. <laughs> yesterday, yesterday, this is in Germany, yesterday I took part in another characteristic form of amusement. At 2.30 p.m., a crowd of us with ladies went to by train to Kola, a little town about 10 minutes from Marburg, and there we proceeded to make a day of it. Coffee drinking, cake eating, and other kinds of drinking, and other kinds of eating filled up the intervals in the dancing which continued till about 11 o'clock in the evening. This is Sabbath preparation for Machen as a, as a student. <clears throat> I tried the dancing once, but only once, as in the first place the thing is done very differently from the way it is done in America. And in the second place, I never could dance very much anyhow. However, I had a mighty good time, and the informality was refreshing. It may not look very elegant to dance in plain, ordinary suits of clothes on a floor quite innocent of wax, but it suits me better than that awful stiffness which in America makes an entertainment a horror. Um, So Machen liked even to dance in Germany sometimes, even though he admitted that he was not any good at it. And so I think, you know, ballroom dancing with the the, the coats and the tails and all that was different than the way it was in Germany, where it was still in some ways formal, but less formal than in America. Um, and it's interesting just to remember um, and, and contrast Machen and Kuiper at this point. When Kuiper gave his famous lectures on Calvinism in 1898 at Princeton Seminary, um, just a few years before Machen would have enrolled, um, Machen, I mean, Kuiper has this vigorous understanding of reform world and life view and, and, the, and the great influence that the reform world and life view has had on the history of the West. And yet there's a line in there early on in the book about how um, this culture-shaping activity of the Reformed uh, faith does not extend to certain worldly things, worldly amusements that need to be avoided by Christians. And among those amusements that needed to be avoided are dancing, cards, and theater. And these these were three sins even when the CRC, the Christian Reformed Church, adopted sort of a a Kuyperian outlook in in 1924 over debates about common grace in the church. They did condemn dancing cards and theater as sins that that Christians should avoid. Now, Machen liked to go to theater in New York City. He he danced, not, not necessarily comfortably, and he liked to play cards. In fact, he played a lot of bridge in the summers with the, with the Armstrongs. And Machen wrote to his mother at one point that if the seminarians ever got wind that they were playing cards, there'd be a real ruckus because, of course, cards were considered verboten. Um, so it's just interesting to contrast Machen's practice 
versus the kind of expectations that may have been going on in reform circles about worldliness. And again, this is to illustrate the point that you would not have expected Machen with this background and these interests to emerge as a fighter in the Presbyterian <clears throat> church. So that's a little bit about his family and his education. Now, more of the family comes when we consider Franklin Street Presbyterian Church, which is the congregation where he was, he was reared, um, only a few blocks away from the, the Machen home on uh, Madison Street, um, which is where their home was. And Franklin is a couple blocks away. Franklin Street is now um, an African-American church of some kind. I don't, I don't think it's one of the denominations, but it might be Church of God and Christ. I'm, I can't remember. Um, so all these old uh, um, stained glass windows that are dedicated to various saints in the church, including among them Basil Gildersleeve, the classicist with whom Machen studied at Hopkins. I mean, the church is, has kept those, those, um, those windows up, but it, it doesn't really fit anymore the, the church's own experience. So it's kind of an interesting development in Baltimore history. But um, Franklin Street Church was an old school church, and so I'll have more time today to say what I meant by Bex last week. Um, and so you'd expect perhaps some of Machen's interest in Presbyterian theology and polity to have come from his experience there, especially since his father was an elder at Franklin Street Church. But it is also Curious to observe that the minister called to Franklin Street Church in roughly 1900. So it would have been, I think, for Machen's last year as a, as a student at Hopkins. man by the name of Harris Kirk. And Kirk was, um, if anything, a typical Victorian Protestant minister and not necessarily an old school uh, Protestant, uh, old school Presbyterian. And what I mean by Victorian is that Victorian culture in the late 19th century, and Machen was steeped in this culture, and Browning, the Bible and Browning book that his mother wrote, was in some ways of a piece with this culture as well. Um, there were three central dogmas of Victorian culture. One was the reality, certainty, and eternity of moral values. So there were these ideals of justice, truth, goodness, unselfishness, decency, the Protestant work ethic, things like that. And these were norms that should inform or, or, or that everyone held to. And these were, these were rock-solid moral ideals. The second doctrine or dogma of Victorianism was a belief in progress. This was, um, these people believed that Western civilization was getting better and better. And in large part, it had sort of bought the evolutionary scheme of Darwin, and the forces of civilization were prevailing over the forces of barbarism. So things were getting progressively better, and this was the era that we know as progressivism. So there was a great belief, belief in progress. The third doctrine of Victorianism was a belief in culture. And again, this emphasizes the contrast between civilized peoples and countries versus barbarian peoples and cultures, and explains why Westerners were quite willing to go all over the world and establish colonies because they were on the side of civilization and they were, they were sort of taming these barbarian peoples. So the, this is the kind of 
culture in which Machen is growing up, this Victorian culture, and it's almost synonymous with liberal Protestantism because the belief about these moral values or truths in the first doctrine is very much compatible with the liberal Protestant idea that emphasized the teachings of Jesus and that Jesus was first and foremost the teacher of ethics and not necessarily a savior. And then this belief in progress very much maps up well with the post-millennialism that informed the, um, the liberal Protestant uh, church. So that things were getting better and better and better um, because God was at work moving history forward and making things better and better and better. So that this leads to the, the last point about culture. The kingdom of God was being realized in Western civilization. So this, is, this Victorian culture is very much one that was influencing the Presbyterian Church, and I would even argue influ influencing an old-school congregation like Franklin Street, so that when they called someone like Harris Kirk, um, he was more uh, of a peace with that Victorian age than he was with old-school Presbyterianism as it existed in the middle decades of the 19th century. And if you read Kirk's sermons, you read the biography, a long biography that's been done on Kirk, um, you kind of wonder, how was this guy ever Machen's pastor? Which, again, makes it all the more remarkable that Machen kind of emerged from this environment as someone who was as conservative and as much of a fighter as he was. So that leads then, though, to say something about what old-school Presbyterianism represented. And here I do think that Machen likely... In, intuited some of this old-school concern from both sides of the family, both his mother and his father, who would have grown up in that older Presbyterian uh, background of old-school Presbyterianism. And then also when you consider how um, intent old-school Presbyterians were on following the laws of the church, meaning what does the Constitution say, what does the Confession of Faith say, I mean, that's a very kind of legal way of understanding Presbyterianism. Um, and federal theology that, that the Reformed faith um, uh, relies upon is also another kind of legal understanding of things. So Machen's background, growing up in a, in a, in a home of, of attorneys, um, may have in some ways predisposed him toward an old school uh, kind of faith. But again, I don't think he necessarily got it from his church. I think he got it more from... The family. So, what was old school Presbyterianism? Um, old school Presbyterianism existed roughly between 18, well, not roughly, it started in 1837 with a split between the old school and new school Presbyterians. And it lasted until roughly 1861 when there was a split in, in the old school church along the, the, the sectional lines that were fighting the Civil War. So there was an old-school Presbyterian church north and an old-school Presbyterian church south after 1861. The cause for that division was something that was proposed at the, at the General Assembly of 1861 called the Spring Resolutions. Gardner Spring was an old-school minister in New York who proposed to the assembly that the assembly support the federal union in the, in the war between the north and the south. And um, this, of course, left Southerners in a bit of a predicament. What do you do? We're ministering in the South, but you want our church to be loyal to, to the Union. Um, and even someone like Charles Hodge, who was a Northerner, a great supporter of Lincoln, said that the spring resolutions were akin 
taking a view of America and the, and the side of the North akin to singing the Star-Spangled Banner at the observance of the Lord's Supper. So this was a, a real act of patriotism, but not an act of theology and something that the church should not be engaged in. So that's when the old school church more or less broke up, which is why the dates run from 1837 to 1861. And again, this old school faith hung on more in the South than it did in the North. So Machen's affinities for the South and his family background in the South make some sense of his becoming this old school, this defender of old school Presbyterianism. Um, so there were three, um, more or less three characteristics that define the old school Presbyterian church. One was a defense of Calvinist soteriology, especially the federal theology of the Westminster Confession, meaning that the, the, the imputation of, of Adam's sin in, in, in uh, the fall and also the imputation of Christ's righteousness were things that new school Presbyterians were wobbling on and old school Presbyterians defended. Second characteristic of old school Presbyterianism was a commitment to Presbyterian polity. And a third, so you know, what does it mean to have these, these courts of the church, session, Presbytery, general assembly, and, and the ways that you conduct the affairs of the church through these delegated assemblies. These were important matters to old school Presbyterians. And then the third uh, characteristic, the last uh, that I've identified here anyway, is a commitment to reform piety. So not everyone in the old school, but a lot of old school defenses of reformed worship and piety, or a lot of defenses of, of of um, reformed worship and piety came out of the old school church. So, for instance, old, prominent old schoolers wrote against having organs in church. Sorry. Um, which was not the practice of the reformed churches going way back to Geneva and Zurich. Um, they also uh, argued, for instance, about the importance of standing for prayer as opposed to sitting for prayer. Um, Another option would be kneeling. Kneeling is what Episcopalians and Roman Catholics do. So, but, you know, is it more fitting that we stand for prayer, stand in God's presence when we're, when we're addressing him than sitting? And the other, just throw this in as, as a sidelight, the other advantage of standing for prayer is that the minister doesn't go on too long because he has to be, be worried about how, what his, his uh, congregation can endure as far as standing. But there's a great story. Samuel Miller, who was an old-school Presbyterian, the churches had already begun to sit for pastoral prayers over the course of the 19th century, but he and his wife would still stand for prayer wherever they were. And um, the, the church in Brazil, where my wife and I worshipped back in the 90s, um, was established in some way by, by Southern Presbyterians who migrated to Brazil during the Civil War. And um, at the one congregation, the oldest congregation in Sao Paulo, Brazil, they still stand for prayer there. Um, so, uh, old schoolers opposed revival songs, a number of things, uh, thoughtful critiques of American Protestantism and a, and a defense of reformed uh, piety and worship would come out of the old school church. But I, th these, these five uh, points of old school that I have here that, that come up with this mnemonic of, of um, Beck's, so B has to do with sufficiency of Scripture or of the Bible, which is why you get Bible. Um, the Bible is the final authority for regulating the life and witness and worship of the church. So that's what B stands for. The C, excuse me, the E stands for election. That's the federal theology. 
God calls a people to himself um, and works out his, his calling purposes through the covenants. Um, and the, this God's calling the people to himself is realized in the visible church. Uh, C stands for confessionalism. The unity of the church cannot be separated from the truthfulness of the church's witness, which is realized in the church's creed or confessions. And there's a corporate witness of the church. And that corporate witness comes through the church's confessions. Um, K stands for the kingdom of God. Um, and this is very much emphasizing that the kingdom of God is the visible church of Jesus Christ as opposed to the kingdom of God being Western civilization or even the kingdom of God being exerted through parachurch agencies that the new school Presbyterians were often supporting, all sorts of parachurch agencies like Bible societies, tract societies, reform societies having to do with alcohol and things like that. The, um, the old schoolers were very much concerned to have religious work overseen by... Uh, the courts of the church, those duly set apart to, to conduct that work. And so they were much more tended to regard the kingdom of Christ as the, um, as the church and not some sort of cultural project. And then S stands for the spirituality of the church, which was a crucial point in the debate over the spring resolutions, which was that the church really does not take a stand on political matters because the church can only... Um, administer or declare what God's word requires. And Charles Hodge himself says that scripture is not at all clear about the, um, the debates between the, the rights and powers of the federal government versus the rights and powers of the state's governments. That's not a question that scripture addresses. So the spirituality of the church in that case would mean that the church needs to be silent on a political question like this and only speak about matters that uh, God has clearly revealed in his word. And so what you see in, the, in this B-E-C-K-S is an emphasis upon the church. Um, and so the, the old school Presbyterianism had a very high view of the church, not a high church view like Episcopalians were having in, in the middle decades of the, of the uh, 19th century in the so-called Oxford movement. But they recognized the church as a holy enterprise committed to the task of redeeming God's people. It was not a humanitarian agency for necessarily alleviating all the miseries of uh, humankind. And this also meant a great uh, attention to the means for preserving the integrity of the church. So looking at the church's constitution, its polity, and its ordination requirements, its theological standards, and the like. These were, these were matters that... Um, that motivated Orthodox Presbyterian, excuse me, old school Presbyterians often to take the stands that they did. So that is what I mean by old school Presbyterianism, and it wasn't as evident in Franklin Street Church necessarily when Machen was a college student, but it, I do think that it was there earlier in his family's background, and perhaps with the former minister at Franklin Street, and that is going to uh, define very much Machen's. Um, Outlook, And I should say, too, that Machen received some of his old school training while a student at Princeton because Princeton was an old school Presbyterian seminary. Um, and even when the old school, when the northern, excuse me, when the old, old school and new school churches in the north reunited in 1869, part of the terms of the reunion were, were that, was that. 
Princeton Seminary would remain an old-school institution. It would remain committed to an old-school understanding of Presbyterianism. So Machen would have also received uh, some awareness of old-school convictions while a student at, Pres- at uh, Princeton. So let me just conclude then with this little bit on this crisis of faith. Machen, as a student in Germany, and, and, and historians, biographers have written about this crisis of faith, and Machen even writes about something of a crisis of faith in his autobiographical piece that I read from earlier. Um, and uh, he, had, he has extensive correspondence with his mother about the, these matters, and he, he says in his memoirs about how much his mother really helped him through these struggles. Um, I, I myself am less inclined to look at this, uh, these doubts that he had as necessarily whether he doubted the truth of Christianity or his faith as much as he was doubting what to do with his life. He was very much undecided about a vocation. And again, given his cultural interests and, and um, interest in amusement and fun, um, I, I think he looked at becoming a clergyman, which is what you needed to be to teach at Princeton. You needed to be ordained. Um, as an inhibition, as something that would restrict his, his enjoyment of life. Um, I think that's part of what's going on here as well, because he was exposed to a lot of liberal teaching, even at Princeton, in the sense that part of Princeton's curriculum was to, was to have students read in liberal theology and critique it. But So going to Germany, he wouldn't have been surprised by what he heard there, necessarily. So I think some of this crisis of faith has more to do with his own uh, uncertainty about what to do with his life. And you can see that the way he wrote about his parents and his brother, that he thought that these people were on a different plane than he was, and he was just a, a piker compared to them. Um, so I, I think he, he wanted to be sort of like them and just couldn't be, and, and, and being a, a professor at a seminary just wasn't going to be as important or as impressive as what his, his parents or his brother did. So I, I do think that that's part of this, but over time... He starts, he comes back from Germany in 1906, and he starts to teach as a lecturer at Princeton in 1906, and teaches as a lecturer until 1914. And by 1914, he finally resolves enough of these um, matters to feel confident that he can seek ordination, which he does. He's ordained in 1914 as a minister in the Presbyterian Church, and at that point, then, he can become an assistant professor. need to be ordained to be a voting member of the faculty at Princeton. So, um, so he finally comes to terms in some ways, although next week we'll see. I have, as I say, this cliffhanger, World War and the Crisis of the West. There's still something eating at Machen, even after he has resolved these matters. Um, and, and I won't give it away. But, uh, so come back next week and we'll, you'll find out more what happened to Machen during the war. Um, but uh, I also think it's important to remember that there was, there was no one in the family on either side who had been in a clergyman, or a pastor, a minister, or somebody who had even necessarily been an academic. Um, these were people who were engaged in professional life in the world. And in some ways, you know, when Machen was thinking about banking or law as a profession, while he was riding his bikes around New York and Chicago and going to bookstores and plays, um, again, it's an ind- indication, it seems to me, that he, was, he thought he should live his life a certain way because that's what the family did. And this other life of being a New Testament scholar, being a minister, teaching at a seminary, was something that was foreign to the family 
experience, even though they would have regarded what he did as important because it was religious work, but still, um, I think Machen had this other side that, that motivated him. So again, that uh, I think all of these factors and circumstances uh, contribute to this impression that I hope emerges, that Machen was a very unlikely person to emerge as probably the leading fighter on the conservative side in the Presbyterian controversy during the 1920s and 1930s. And I will stop there and uh, take one or two questions if there are any. Okay, let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. We will be continuing our lecture series on J. Gresham Machen next week. But until then, if you would like to read more from Dr. Hart, please visit oldlife.org. If you'd like to find out more information about Reformed Forum and all of the programs that we are currently producing, please visit reformedforum.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.